Hello, and welcome to the Plant-Based Liberty Podcast, the official podcast of the LP Plant-Based Caucus. On this podcast, we'll talk with guests and explore where a plant-based lifestyle meets libertarian philosophy and so much more. We believe people have the right to freedom when it comes to what they eat, but they deserve to hear the other side of the story from our perspectives. And with that, here's the Plant-Based Liberty Podcast. this episode, we talked with Jacob Daniel Winograd, who is no longer vegan. Jacob shared his story and we did our best to let him speak his truth and not push back against his story and his reasoning for abandoning the lifestyle. I understand that there are very few of us, so platforming someone who's no longer vegan and giving him an opportunity to explain his decision to stop may not sit well with some vegans. But I believe it's important for vegans to listen to this episode and take away lessons so we can take steps to prevent this from happening in the future. Please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode, and as you do, remember why you're on this lifestyle journey in the first place. With that in mind, please enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Plant-Based Liberty. My name is Plant-Based Matt. And I'm Jessica. And today we are here with Jacob Daniel Winograd. How's it going, Jacob? I'm doing good. I'm uh, honored to be here for your guys' uh, second episode. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. We're stoked you're here. Um, So for those in our audience who don't know, tell us a little about yourself. All right. So uh, I am a Christian. I'm a father of four um, married to my beautiful wife, Brianna. Uh, we've been married for nine, uh, nine and a half years now. And so I grew up in the church and my dad was a pastor and also a missionary. Um, but I kind of, I mean, short, short story of it all is that I kind of rebelled against my conservative upbringing and went kind of hard to the left. And I was a democratic socialist and a Bernie bro and, a uh, I don't. I don't mean to tie veganism in with the left, but I was also a vegan during all of that time. And uh, then uh, after Trump was elected, uh, I don't know, just kind of like the left went insane, um, including all the vegan circles that I was in. And I found myself politically homeless. And uh, I stumbled upon Dave Smith and the Mises Institute and libertarians, and um, I became convinced of their ideas. And uh, joined the Libertarian Party in 2020 because of all the COVID mania and all that, and then started my podcast shortly after that because I was, uh, you know, the Christian, I was very upset at just how many churches shut down during all that and uh, were going just kind of lockstep with everything that the state told them to do. And I was like, I mean, at the beginning when people were kind of unsure what was going on, I understood, but I, I just felt like, you know, as a Christian, our number one thing is to worship God and to gather with believers. And I, I, I think we can do that uh, with respect to people's health concerns, but to, to completely stop doing it, I felt was a, uh, a betrayal of our faith and a misalignment of 
the authorities were supposed to be in submission to. And so that's what got me into podcasting was primarily talking uh, about libertarianism from the Christian perspective. And uh, I joined the Libertarian Christian Institute last year and uh, moved my podcast over to there. And I'm also uh, a see, I'm the chair of my county party for the Libertarian Party. I'm a state organizer for the Mises Caucus and a founder of the Libertarian Party Christian Caucus. And I'm just all the time active on Twitter and social media, uh, engaging uh, engaging sometimes it seems equally against both libertarians and statists because <laughs> uh, that's what we libertarians do. We like to fight. But yeah, that's uh, that's me in a nutshell. Cool, man. Yeah, I'm the, uh, I'm the uh, region rep, region one rep for the state of Florida, and I'm also the chair of our county. <clears throat> awesome. Right on. So you mentioned you grew up Christian. Did you ever have a point in your life where you kind of strayed away from the church or? So I never stopped believing in God. Um, you know, there were definitely times when I was like a teenager and I was just being dumb and sneaking out and going to meet up with girlfriends and, and, and friends and, and, you know, doing dumb things that young people do. <laughs> um, and, you know, as a young adult, you know, I never, you know, I attended church, you know, fairly regularly, although I, uh, I, it was weird. Like I was heavily involved in church, but I had a very low view of church. <laughs> um, but uh, kind of like I said in my my uh, opening there, after 2020, I kind of, um, you know, had my perspective changed and um, felt that there was a, you know, a, a church shaped hole in society. I mean, there's obviously, I think a God shaped hole as well, but, um, but the church is the body of Christ. And I just kind of started to feel that there was a significant need and demand for what the church is supposed to be doing. And so, um, you know, I think I like, kind of like my, uh, politics, I started out progressive and then kind of evolved into something, I guess more conservative or traditional, but I don't, I don't even like using those labels, but, uh, that's kind of how my religious views evolved. I think I started out, um, more of a progressive Christian, but now I've, um, you know, I think I've, I've, I've sort of come to accept a more historical, more orthodox, uh, view of Christianity. So you've done a bunch of podcasts, um, pushing back against, uh, Christian critics of libertarianism. Um, who often, cite Romans 13 as the gotcha of uh, why the philosophy is incompatible with Christianity. Would you mind summarizing your opposition to that popular criticism from your specific libertarian Christian perspective? Yeah, of course. And um, and I don't mean to criticize the, the question, but I, I do try to be careful to, to never read my political ideology into scripture. Now, like the name of my show is Biblical Anarchy, and so I get accused of that sometimes, but I'm trying to read the scripture and just read what it says. Um, I am convinced, however, that what the scripture says lines up with the same conclusions that libertarian philosophy gives us, which I don't think is surprising. I think we can discover God uh, through the natural world, and we can discover what is often referred to as the natural law in observing you know, just kind of like our intuitions and human interactions. And this is something that many Christian theologians have talked about. One of the ones that's more famous is C.S. Lewis. He talks about, you know, the 
the natural law argument in his book, um, Your Christianity. Um, and so, you know, I think libertarianism is really just taking natural law to its uh, inevitable conclusions. And if, since natural law comes from God, it, it, it makes to me perfect intuitive sense that the Bible would line up with that. Um, you know, I think where I would start is just kind of like, I think libertarianism is, is, there's two ways to define it. I mean, some people define it by the non-aggression principle, which I think is a good way to start. It is the belief that it is immoral to initiate force or coercion against other people. Um, and that means, you know, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, right? Uh, I mean, that's, and that lines up with commandments in the Bible. I mean, you have do not steal, do not murder, um, even goes, it goes as far to, you know, to say in the 10 commandments, do not covet, which is like, don't even sit there obsessing over things that people have that you don't. Um, and so, you know, I think on the surface, libertarianism and, and what biblical morality, uh, teaches are, are compatible, but then you have people, you know, if we take libertarianism to its conclusion, which leads us to, you know, I take the the anarchist or ANCAP position that I, I don't believe in the moral legitimacy of the state. Um, but even a, a minarchist who believes in a minimal state would believe that the state has to adhere to like the non-aggression principle and things like that, which the modern state doesn't. And if the state is, you know, or any governing authority is acting tyrannical that, you know, we, we should not, you know, obey it. But then you have Christian critics of these kind of arguments who go, well, what about, you know, passages in the Bible that talk about submission to authority? And there's more than one passage, you know, uh, there's uh, a passage in, I, I'm actually forgetting if it's first or second Peter right now, um, but I've touched on that on my podcast as well. Uh, there's the render unto Caesar passage from Matthew 20. Romans 13 is probably the more common one. And Romans 13 uh basically says uh, that to be subject to governing authorities, although some people interpret it to, to say higher powers or heavenly authorities, uh, but, but most, most uh, interpret it to say governing authorities, uh, for there's no authority except that which comes from God. Uh, do you want to have no fear of those who are in authority? Then do good and you will receive the same. But if you do evil, beware because uh, the governing authorities do not bear the sword in vain. Rather, they are a minister of God, uh, an avenger uh, for your good. And that's why it's necessary to be in subjection, not only for uh, uh, for sake of uh, wrath, but for, for sake of conscience. And this is why uh, it's necessary to pay taxes or in the Greek, it's really just one word for tribute. Uh, and that's why that says pay, uh, pay to all what is due honor to whom honor tribute to whom tribute, uh, respect to whom respect, etc. Uh, and then people often forget the second part of Romans 13, which then goes on to say, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love them. So <laughs> that's a whole other angle we can go at there. But I think it, it's important to concentrate on the first half and figure out what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Because my contention is that we can right off the bat go, this can't mean blind obedience to the state. And I think most Christians of good faith who have studied it would agree with that. The more traditional, if you want to call it that interpretation, is to just obey the government unless they are asking you to directly sin or disobey God. Um, 
which is at least an okay starting point. There are some Christians who don't at least they, they don't even give you that much. They <laughs> they they go into insane, you know, tangents and arguments about, you know, blind admission to the obedience to the state. Um, or you have Christian nationalists who want to transform the state into this, you know, uh, a, an agent wielding the sword for the sake of Christianity. But uh, my contention is that we have to go a little bit further here because we have many examples in the Bible of God and, and God's people uh, pushing against the governing authorities and not just when they were asked to uh, not, not just when they were asked to sin even. Um, and so we, we also have to ask ourselves, okay, what, what is, let's go like line by line here and what he's talking about. There, there is a key line in Romans 13 that I like to hone in on. It says that the governing authorities, whatever, whatever the subject is there, because that's, it's, it's, the Greek is like, uh, ekousia, uh, hyper echo ekousia or, or something to that, to that effect. I'm not great at Greek pronunciations, uh, as much as I listen to people like James White, I can't ever get it quite down right. But um, so these higher powers or governing authorities, it says that they are not a terror to those who do good. And I think right away we have to stop and ask ourselves, well, what does that mean? Because if we read that and we so and we read Romans 13 as a passage that is descriptive, that it's describing the governing authorities, and we assume that the governing authorities is the state or just all government. Well, this is just like logically impossible. Like it's just false on its face because governments, like nation states, are just routinely a terror to those who do good. Um, more so, they're usually run by evil, corrupt people. <laughs> um, and, and so it's like, okay, well, we can't, it can't be describing the state. It can't certainly at least be describing all states. Not all states are uh, not a terror to those who do good. I mean, maybe not every waking moment, but it, you know, very often, more often than not, they are. Um, and so I think rather what we have to remember, and this is where I think libertarian philosophy is useful, is that there is a distinction between civil governance and the state, or like capital G, the government. So the state, or the government, is like this entity that claims a monopoly over civil governance. So my argument, and I think that there is uh, strong biblical grounds for this interpretation, um, and uh, I'm trying to be as brief as I can, but there's a lot to unpack. Uh, I go into much, like, greater detail line by line in, in my podcasts and, and, and various writings. But if the, if, if we're going to read this as describing the state, like I said, it's just logically impossible. I think the only way to reconcile this logically and with the rest of scripture is to say that this text is prescribing the norms for civil governance. So I don't think that God wants us to live in a society of lawlessness or chaos, uh, rules are good. I think libertarians are not a people who believe in no rules. Uh, you know, I don't believe anarchy is a political system of no rules. That's the, the slogan is it's no rulers, not no rules. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really against is the monopolization of these things and the creation of a monopoly through the initiation of force. And so 
The act of governing in the pursuit of civil justice, meaning the protection of the innocent and the upholding of natural law, the upholding of God's moral decrees, that is a biblical decree and that is a biblical role. And God is descri- God through Paul is describing that in Romans 13, that that true civil governance is not a terror to those who do evil, but rather to I mean to those who do good, but uh, is a terror to those who do evil. And I think that's the correct way to read that passage. So that's at least an introductory, like the, the, the basic summary. Like I said, it's I, I, people can check out uh, my links and stuff, which I can give that go to the episodes where I go, go into this a little bit more line by line and uh, answer objections to it as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely plug all your stuff at the end. Um, let's see. So let's talk a little bit about your specific philosophy and your, what you, uh, what kind of libertarian you are. Um, I'd say it's safe to assume that you're more of the anarcho-capitalist, uh, libertarian, would you say? Yes. Okay. Um, so the term capitalism has been butchered by bad actors or people who don't understand. They actually hate crony capitalism. Um, would you mind describing anarcho-capitalism and how uh, free market capitalism is different than our current crony capitalist system? Right. And, uh, you know, I, it's like I, I actually made a poll about this on Twitter a couple of days ago, if capitalism is a good term or not. And it's, you know, it, it, I go back and forth on that myself. But but I, I do tend to try to defend the term. Um, you know, I, to me, capitalism is just a system of private property uh, free trade. Um, and, and that's it. Anytime you introduce a government law that infringes upon private property or free trade, we're not talking about capitalism anymore, at least not the capitalism I'm trying to defend or free markets. Um, and really anarcho-capitalism is almost a, uh, what's the term, like a, a tautology where you repeat yourself. It's like if, if you have a society that is capitalistic, where everything is based in private property and free trade, well, taking capitalism to its natural conclusion at that point, I think, ends you in a state of essentially anarchy or a there's no monopoly um, because the state is an entity that, by its very nature, requires the initiation of force to establish its uh, rule or authority, and it it does through does so through the violation of property rights. Uh, this you know, I mean, I guess. This gets into definitions, and like sometimes minarchists will describe the, you know, what I would call a, like a mythical unicorn, the voluntary state, you know, a state that doesn't tax and that doesn't create its power. But it's like at that point, it's like, all right, you're describing anarchy with flawed terms, in my opinion. Um, but that that is that's somewhere where, you know some of the the overlap between you know radical minarchism and anarchism, but um. The point being that uh, we're talking about a polycentric legal order as opposed to a monocentric legal order. A monocentric legal order would be that there is one ruling authority, you know, either over the whole world or within a particular geographic region. Um, and again, that is historically just always created through the initiation of force, meaning that they claim the right to rule over you. You didn't consent to it. It's not a voluntary agreement that 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 rose up, and part of that authority that they claim is a right to 
some of your labor. They claim a right to initiate taxation. That is how they fund themselves. And taxation is not voluntary. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't call it taxation. We would call it like charity or contributions or sales. But what makes taxation different than me buying something from you is that when the government taxes you, it's not like a suggestion. It's not a question. It's a, you know, this is what you owe and you have to pay it. If you don't pay your taxes, they might not uh, immediately uh, escalate to violence. But the the end goal of like the, the end point of tax evasion is like they'll keep fining you and fining you and and sending letters in the mail. And, you know, after a long enough time, someone with a gun, an agent of the state is going to show up at your doorstep to put you in a cage. And if you resist that person, they will use violent force against you. So taxation is theft. It's extortion. And that makes the state uh, an anathema to uh, private property rights. And so therefore, if we want, if we believe in free markets and we believe in voluntary associations, if we believe in that, that it's wrong to initiate force against non-aggressive uh, people, non-violent people, I think the natural conclusion of that is anarchy. And again, I don't define anarchy as a, a system of lawlessness or a society where, you know, it's uh, no rules and just, you know, uh, I think, I, I, again, a polycentric legal order is a better way to describe it. Anarcho, anarcho-capitalists such as Rothbard, Hoppe, uh you know, Walter Block, there, there's many who have written about the ways in which an anarchist society would govern, uh, you know, would be self-governing through market mechanisms. You would have like dispute resolution organizations, you would have private arbitration, you would have private security, all, all the ways in which free markets make everything better, right? Like free markets create these magical devices that we have in, you know, our pockets that we can open up and talk to anyone in the world or Google any question in the world. Uh, you know, free markets have led to the, uh, you know, drastic reduction in poverty, led to new techniques for growing food, new ways for transportation, uh, new ways for generating energy. Uh, there, there's all that creative energy and problem solving that free markets are good at Anarcho-capitalism is essentially saying that we believe that that same force can be unleashed on the sphere of civil governance, which is primarily about property rights disputes, meaning someone either, you know, aggressed against someone with physical violence or someone violated someone else's property rights, whether it's through, you know, overt, like, you know, someone broke in and stole your TV or like someone broke a contract or someone has failed to live up to some kind of, uh, you know, exchange, you know, that they agreed to. So uh, it's something that uh, would be hard to go into much more detail than that. But, uh, and when people first hear anarcho-capitalism, there's like tons of questions and like, how would you handle the roads? And what, <laughs> you know, wouldn't war, well, my favorite one is, wouldn't warlords take over? And I'm like, well, <laughs> if they did, it's no worse than the status quo, right? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> our society is kind of run by warlords right now. So if the end point of anarchy is uh, one of my favorite uh, anarchists, Michael Malice says it most brilliantly. He says all the arguments against anarchy come down to descriptions of the status quo. And uh, anyway, I'd, I'd recommend if people are new to that concept to, to do some more, you know, look into Murray Rothbard, look into Michael Malice, uh, check out the Mises Institute. They've done a lot of writings on private law, 
polycentric legal order and things like that. I quoted uh, Malice last night when I was on Punk Rock Libertarians. <laughs> so I know, I know that's right. Yeah, I watched. I didn't. I, I got ten minutes from finishing that episode. I was <laughs> I was listening to it today at work. That was that was fun. That was a fun time. So, being that you're libertarian and Christian, can you explain to our audience your view on decriminalizing drugs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty simple. Uh, the war on drugs has been a complete failure. Even if a Christian believes that the use of certain substance, substances is immoral or not beneficial to you, um, again, the government and really the state being an entity of coercion, um, they pass a law banning a substance. All that does is create a black market for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the war on drugs has done nothing but create uh a giant demand for the illegal substances. It's empowered the drug cartels. It's unleashed, you know, um, incredible violence in our cities. It's caused turmoil in Mexico and other parts of, uh, you know, Central and South America. Um, it has caused it's a lot of the reason for the border crisis or whatever you want to call it that, that you know, is causing an influx of Im- immigrants. It's just uh, across the board. I mean, the the even when they successfully you know do a drug bust and they get some crime lord off the street he's just replaced by another one a few weeks later it's it's just a it's a money pit um it, it has not been proven to be effective um and at the end of the day i believe that people are free to do sinful things mm-hmm. i don't have to agree with them i don't believe i should be forced to pay for <laughs> the the consequences of any actions that they take Uh, but, uh, if someone wants to smoke weed or shoot up heroin or, I mean, as long as now, I mean, if they start becoming an endangerment to people around them, that that, that's a, you know, there are reasonable things that those acting in the role of government should do, uh, to, you know, I don't think locking them in a cage is in order. It would be like, just remove them from an area where they're potentially causing public harm. Um, you know, I, you know, I think Ron Paul was asked this um, in the debate stage when he was asked if he would legalize heroin. And I mean, there's no one more Christian or conservative than Ron Paul. I mean, he's this, you know, you know this old uh, doctor from a small town. And uh, he was asked about it if he would, you know, legalize heroin. He said yes. And I think he got booed. And then he was like, come on, like who here in this in this room if heroin was legal, made legal right now, would just go out and shoot up heroin. Like, is is it really the 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 law, the words on the paper that are preventing you from doing that, or is it just like you know it's a bad idea? And you know, there's actually arguments to be made that uh, drug decriminalization not only leads to you know it would it would uh, removing the black market and that kind of like forbidden fruit aspect to it would probably lower the amount of people who are like super curious about it and go and try it. Uh, people would be using it in safer uh, settings and in safe, safer ways. A lot of the times the illegal substances sold in the black market are laced with other things that make them more dangerous or more addictive. Um, you know, again, it's like, I, I don't have to agree with those things. I shouldn't be forced to fund those things. Uh, but I believe people are, free to sin and actually the default of pe- in the Christian point of view, the default setting of people is to seek out things of pleasure and, and sinful things unless they are born again, unless they've received, uh, 
you know, a, a revelation from the Holy Spirit and they've uh, realized that they're enslaved to their sin and that they're in need of a savior, then they can break free of that and, and you know, uh, seek godly th- things and, and seek to live a righteous life. Um, but, but if they're not Christian, um, or if they claim to be Christian and, you know, that's, the other thing is medi- there a lot of these substances have the, a, a legitimate use in a proper time and setting. I mean, Paul said at best that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. All things have their proper time and place. Uh, you know, I think uh, cannabis is a good example of this. Uh, I you know, Even something like fentanyl, which people uh, talk about a lot. Well, fentanyl is actually uh, an effective pain uh, killer uh, for infants when they need surgeries and stuff. Um, there's a lot of things that like you got to be careful when you use the government to ban them because there's unintentional side effects of that. Um, that's something Hayek talks about in in the law that there's always uh, there's the seen and the unseen in terms of any law that we pass through the uh, through the state or through through government. So um, you know, I think what Christians have to realize is that. Making something legal is not an endorsement of it. It mm-hmm. just means that you don't believe violence should be used against someone uh, just for doing it. Yep, which is why uh, you can have people on the left and the right uh, of the libertarian sphere because uh, basically as long as you don't want government to dictate how um, society is, then you can have whatever views you want as long as you're not forcing someone else to them. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, So this is the plant-based podcast. So we wanted to ask you about, you've mentioned before that you were vegan for five years and we were just wondering what made you stop? So um, I became vegan probably primarily for the environmental concerns and also because of my concerns with animal cruelty, um, probably less so for the health reasons, although I was told that there were also health benefits to becoming a vegan. Um, but those are kind of the, usually the three ways that people, you know, come to, you know, uh, a vegan lifestyle. And I, I went into it pretty hard. I mean, I wasn't, cause you have some vegans, I think who are just like dietary vegans, but they'll still use leather. They don't really, you know, like, stop using animal products entirely across the board. Then you have like full committed lifestyle vegans, which is what I was. I, I like didn't use leather. Um, you know, I, I tried to be very conscious about everything that we used and consumed that it didn't involve animal products or animal suffering to create it. You know, there were some things where there was no choice and you just do your best to navigate those as they come up. Um, although I was always a little unorthodox when it came to honey because I just was like, I don't know, they're insects. And uh, there's like a local beekeeper down the street from me who does it completely humanely without smoke. He just uses like percussion methods to get the drip, kind of like what drips off naturally. And it is like bees are endangered. So beekeepers kind of help to repopulate. So I I was a little bit unorthodox in that regard. Um, I would sometimes get into arguments with vegans about uh, how I didn't think honey was a ethical violation of, of veganism. Um, you gotta watch more than honey, more than honey. Yeah. Um, that's what it's called. But, uh, 
in, in any event, other other than my my one, it's kind of like what's that saying with libertarianism? You get one deviation. So my uh, <laughs> some people are like, I'm a libertarian, but I uh, I think we need closed borders, or I'm a libertarian, but I don't know about legalizing heroin. So my one yep. deviation as a vegan was I, I wasn't willing to give up my honey. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Me and Otto were talking about that um, last night. Uh, it was like, yeah, vegans will be like, yo, you ride you ride horses. You're not vegan. Like it's just, oh, yeah. and libertarians are like the exact same. It's like, oh, you believe this? You're not a real libertarian. Like, right, yeah. Um, anyway, the, the reasons I stopped being vegan, I mean, there, it was kind of like there wasn't one thing. It was like a lot of dominoes fell. Uh, COVID happened, prices went up, we had more mouths to feed, and there was just the economic strain of not only trying to find affordable ways to eat a healthy, whole-based, plant-based diet, but like finding things that everybody wanted to eat because finding healthy vegan foods that young children who were picky wanted to eat was just a constant challenge. And then when you know supermarkets were running low on food and stuff, that just exacerbated that more. Um, so I think like one of the first things that kind of fell was like we kind of went like, you know what, maybe we'll at least with the kids, be more like vegetarian with the kids, give them some dairy and some eggs so that it's a little bit easier to find things to feed them. Uh, My wife and I still stayed vegan for the most part. Um, But that was kind of like the first domino to fall was just like economic reasons and also just kind of like the availability of stuff. Although that doesn't really factor in anymore because things have gotten back to normal and now the grocery stores are like filled three to four times more with the vegan stuff than when I was vegan, which is always, <laughs> and, and restaurants too. So it's kind of ironic. It was like when I was vegan, I'd be like, man, I wish I could eat at this restaurant or I wish they had more of this stuff at the grocery store. And now I'm not vegan. It's like, it's everywhere now. And I was like, cool. Where was this, you know, four years ago, three years ago. Um, but, uh, I think the, uh, there's really two major things that that made my wife and I uh, step away from, well, no, really three things. Um, one, I wasn't convinced that it was good for our health, um, or at least not for me. Um, I I just noticed I was, I was lethargic all the time. Um, I was having a hard time maintaining my weight. Um, I was having a hard time with, with my allergies, because I believe I have like a gluten sensitivity mm-hmm. and it's just hard. It's like, all right, now I'm going to be vegan and gluten-free and that just lowers even more. It's like, I mean, you guys know how much of the vegan foods uh, contain like seitan, which is gluten-based and whatnot. So I was like, well, if I can't do that stuff, that eliminates more of that. So I'm like just doing tofu and it's like, okay, how many different ways can I make tofu? <laughs> um, but, you know, I kept it going for a little bit after that, but I... I, I was concerned that, um, and, and just seeing more evidence of people who had been vegan for a while had tried doing it the right way and then had the same reports that they just felt like it wasn't working out for for them. And I was kind of like, you know, I guess we're all different. And so, you know, for some people, like I know people who have been vegan for like 20, 30 years and they're completely healthy. So I'm not saying veganism is a unhealthy diet, but I I, I came to believe more that it might be hard to be sustainable for some people to do it in a healthy way. And and what also fed into that was the local availability of certain foods. And during COVID, that became a big concern of mine was like, you know, a lot of like a lot of what I'm eating relies on people making foods in other places and then that gets shipped to my supermarket and I buy it. 
like if that all if that all system collapsed even for a little bit, I don't know what we would eat. <laughs> it's like where would we get all the different like you know like I don't like where would we get tofu? I could learn to make tofu, um, you know, uh, you know, different beans and rice and uh, and things like that, like quinoa. I was just like, I was like, I was like, you know, it'd be nicer if I knew I was eating a diet that I could sustain if I had to source all my food locally. But then I was like, all right, so now we're trying to eat a diet that is gluten-free and vegan, and it needs to be locally based. And I live in Pennsylvania, where the growing season is just not, you know, as I think you guys were down. Are you guys down in Florida? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So it's like I, my wife and I would always say, if we lived in Florida or Hawaii, it would be easier. But like up where we live, it's like, I mean, there's just not a lot of fruits and veggies that people grow. People grow corn and soybean up here. Um, and no one really sells soybean. It's like they grow it to sell to other people for to to make all the processed soy things that, that are made. Um, so that was pushing us already towards thinking that this was hard for us to sustain. And then I uh, looked into regenerative farming because I had a friend of mine who was talking to me about it. And I kind of thought, and basically, I mean, maybe you guys know what regenerative farming is, but if the audience doesn't know, my my best understanding of it is that um, the best way to kind of have a balanced farming cycle is that you need to have a rotation of not just crops in different fields, but animals are an important part of this process because they help to actually restore uh, soil that's been used for growing crops. And if you don't do this, you can lead to soil degradation and actually uh, you know, have things like the dust bowl again, or at least have a decreased food supply. Um, and then the other thing was like, all right, well, I'd always kind of wondered, what do we do with all the animals? If like everyone was vegan, what do we do with all the animals that are farm animals right now? Like some of them are low maintenance, but like cows require a lot of food and, and, and investment to keep them alive. I was like, I don't, are we just going to have food sanctuary, uh, um, you know, animal sanctuaries that run nonprofit and keep all these animals alive? Or are they going to go extinct? And I just kind of came, became convinced for all these different reasons. I was like, you know what? For my health, for the economic uh, hardship, for the wanting to eat a diet that's coming from my local, our local biosphere, and because of regenerative farming, uh, seeming like it's it's a ethical way to do things. You know, if, if and again, like, I don't I don't like factory farming. I, we try to buy all of our meat from local farms that that don't do like the inhumane practices. Um, and they, they basically practice things like regenerative farming. And so, I mean, the cows eat grass most of the time, except during the winter when, you know, it's like we have cold winters, so the grass can, can go away. And so they'll be fed hay then. Um, but you know, they, they, they do that kind of natural rotation to me. I'm like, I don't know this. And maybe there's a Christian element to it too. I was like, if we're, God calls us to be good stewards and to, you know, uh, as we engage in these things. And I was like, this just seems like it's more natural and is a symbiotic relationship between us and those animals. Um, and, you know, that, and, and so I think it was that and the belief that uh, include, and that uh, reintroducing animal protein 
into our into at least my diet especially would make a difference. Uh, personally, I feel like it, it it overwhelmingly did. Um, I've actually gone to a very low carb, high protein diet, doing uh, mostly beef. Although beef has become so expensive that now it's kind of like sixty percent beef and forty percent uh, chicken. Um, but I just get more sustainable energy from the animal protein than I ever did from the plant protein. Um, I mean, and I would eat tofu. I'd always, cause I know plant proteins, you usually have to combine them. There's not many plant proteins that are whole proteins. A lot of them have to be, uh, added with other ones to give you a complete protein. Even some of them that are like quinoa, it's like they're a complete protein, but Although they contain all the different amino acids, some of the ones they contain are just in very low amounts. Um, and, you know, so I think protein, B12, and iron were the things that I think I was missing out on. And I was trying different vegan supplements to, to uh, you know, get those into my body, but I, I wasn't seeing a difference with any of them. So that's basically what my journey was. It's not like there was a, you know, like a... A, a switch that flipped, you know what I mean? Um, a lot of the things that I learned through my time as a vegan and that I came to believe as a vegan haven't changed. Uh, I think actually being a vegan opened up my eyes to the level of government intervention in our food industry, which is a huge problem. Uh, it opened up my eyes to how much uh, you know of, of what people eat is processed. It made me very conscious about looking at the ingredients label of things and seeing what's in them. Um, you know, so, uh, the, so there's a lot of things there that I still value. I still value being compassionate to animals. I think that factory farming is a, uh, I mean, it's not just like, it, it's, it's so many things it's on a Christian level. I think factory farming is actually an abomination before God, because that is not being a good steward of of God's creation that is that is distorting and abusing God's creation. Um, even if you were going to have a completely like, you know, to someone who just has no compassion for animals, it's like, do you want the food you eat to come from an animal that lived its entire life terrified and tortured and like uh, abused and bombarded with foods it's not supposed to eat and chemicals and steroids and things like that or an animal that lived a natural life and then as it got close to its decline, uh, you know, was then used in its entirety. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think that there's a, you know, I think that is more in the line of what is not just, um, ethical, but it's like, just like in a common sense, like which would you rather eat? <laughs> What's going to be healthier for you? Uh, I think most people intuitively know that the latter would be the better, the better choice. So, uh, not to mention the environmental hazards of factory farming, and uh, the, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, like the pollution of water and runoff and things like that, and the chemicals they use. So there, there's there's so much harm that comes from factory farming. Um, you know, I think it's the result. It's it's the result of a lot of government intervention in uh, in the food market. You know, that's what happens. That's what we as libertarians believe, right? It's like when the government interferes with the free market, we get all sorts of distortions. And factory farming is is uh, is one of those distortions. So, um, anyway, that's my journey, and that's kind of what uh, 
led me to making that change. Um, yeah, we, we were vegan from the time. See, we started being vegan a couple months after my firstborn was born, which was in 2015. Uh, and we stopped in very late 2020. So yeah, it was uh, five years and like a month or two that we were vegan. Thank you for sharing that story. That's really, really opens my mind a lot. Um, the one thing you mentioned, how regenerative farming, you kind of felt like that was more Christian because you're using the whole animal and treating it with respect. Um, the one thing I was going to ask is while you were vegan, you've mentioned you posted some pretty cringe blog posts about tying <laughs> veganism to Christianity. Can you tell yes. us what those were and where people can find those? Yeah. I mean, if you just Google Jacob Winograd, like Christian vegan, I think it still will pop up. Um, it was on the animal advocates of S, uh, SCPA or something like that. It's sort of like Southern York County PA or Southern PA, something like that. Anyway, um, that was the vegan group I was a part of. It was a vegan animal rights activist uh, group. So, like I said, when I was a vegan, I was like, I was like, all into it. Um, which I get that, that. And then when 2016 happened, all the vegans around me, minus one, were hardcore leftists, and they just went insane. And so I stopped hanging out with them. But yeah, if you look up this article, and the reason I think it's cringe is because I used a very I. I was not engaging in in sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics. I was I was very much doing a I'm going to take a mismatch of different verses out of context and bend over backwards to push my worldview into the into the text. Um, I want to be clear. I think that there are Christian considerations that are compatible with veganism, like I mentioned earlier, with the you know being good stewards of God's creation. Also, I mean, there are so so. Let me things that I mentioned in my article that I would still believe in. Um, I think that uh, in God's final uh, a- after the new heaven and new and new earth are created, and when 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 Jesus comes back and when all has been restored and and has been completed, the way that that future is described in the book of Isaiah is that the peace on earth will be so great that even the lion will lay down with the lamb and that a little child can lead them and that there will be no killing of any kind on God's holy mountain. Um, And actually God did not authorize the, or at least ordain the eating of animal uh, eating of animals until after the flood with Noah uh, in the biblical account. And in the beginning, uh, in the garden, all God gave Adam and Eve to eat were the you know plants bearing seeds. So I, I find it, I, I wouldn't be able to like say with 100% certainty that I think that in, a, in, a, in like the uh, eternity after, the end of this age that everyone would be vegan, but I, I find it on biblical ground hard to believe that we would still be killing animals for food at that point. I think at that point, if we will be in our new uh, heavenly bodies and, you know, I mean, it describes that there'll be feasts and stuff, but I imagine God will find a way to provide food without 
the uh, killing of animals. Um, that is, and I, that is to some degree a result of the fall. Um, and so I think, you know, something I believed then, which I still believe now, is that if you can survive without killing animals, that is at least preferable. Um, I just became, again, through all my experiences, I became convinced that it was, even if it was possible to survive, it was very, it, it was, it was not optimal to our, our flourishing and surviving for me and my family to continue down that path. Um, uh, but I, again, I've tried to keep a lot of the ethical considerations that I developed over that time and honor them, uh, as much as, as much as I can. And I mean, it's, 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 you know, <laughs> it, buying buying local meat is not only tough because it's expensive but there's a high demand for it and so uh you know sometimes you go to the market or you go to the butcher and you you know <laughs> you you can't find what you need but uh other other than instances like that uh you know we we do our best to not buy our meat from places that we don't know where it's coming from um and that's not just for ethical reasons. It's again for like the health reasons, like I explained earlier. But a lot of that article that I mentioned, I I just I took like so everything I just said there and cited, I would still say is at least compatible or somewhat compelling. But it's a very long article, and a lot of it, a lot of it's not just bad and taking verses out of context. But a lot of it was also very like SJW. Like I just I I think the opening I made this long speech about like how all the moral progress we've made and how we've overcome slavery and racism and sexism and bigotry and all this and said like veganism is like the next moral step we have to make. Um, which just like, I don't know, like I think even, even if you know, you guys are, 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 you know, pretty hardcore vegans, that, that's very preachy. <laughs> like that's probably not the way you advocate for veganism is like, you know, in that sort of like very preachy SJW way. Um, I mean, it, it's not a very compelling case, I don't think, at the very at the very least. So, uh, but yeah, that article is still up. Uh, I I don't know. It's like I could ask them to take it down, but they're under no obligation to. And to some extent, it's kind of like uh, I I kind of like it being there because uh, I'm pretty. I don't know. I, I'm I'm pretty right wing now on a lot of things. And sometimes people will be like, you were never on the left. And I'm like, I got the credentials to back that up. Like that, that article is on there to this day and is a testament to where I was in my life at that point in time when I wrote it. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. So I would say that what you're doing, I would feel is just as difficult or more difficult than trying to find like tofu and all that stuff, you know, uh, in the grocery store, because so, you know, you're, you're saying you don't want to do factory farmed, um, you know, food. And so approximately 70% of all beef cow is uh, factory farmed and 99% of chickens, turkeys, pigs is factory farmed. So you have to find that 1% that isn't. And that 1% is going to be really expensive. And like you said, that probably has something to do with regulations, government intervention, all that kind of stuff. But just in terms of like how hard it is, I would say it's, I would say it's harder to do that because one per, finding 1% of, you know, 
chicken, turkey, pig is going to be very hard to do. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, I'll admit I'm, you know, sometimes I'm buying the chicken that says it's free range, but of course I know that things that are on the labels are not always true. Um, and so sometimes I'm buying things and taking a leap of faith and hoping that, uh, you know, I'm usually reading the labels and trying to find the ones that I think are, I don't know, the most convincing, which might just mean they're most, the most effective liars. Um, I do my best to stay away from chicken. I don't even like eating chicken. Uh, we actually have six chickens in our home and we just have them for the eggs. Um, and we love them. So that also makes it hard to want to eat chicken. (laughs) (laughs) they give you pretty awkward looks. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I try to do most, I don't, I don't, I don't like pork. So I, I pretty much just eat uh, beef when I can, which is more expensive. Although a little bit of beef goes a long way, um, which is the good thing about beef. I think it's a superior meat to chicken. And um, you know, you can, I can eat like 10 ounces of beef a day and, that's my entire meat intake for the day, which is not a lot, like 10 ounces of, of beef over an entire day. That's like one steak if you were to measure it that way. Um, so, uh, uh, I agree, I agree with you in terms of that. It's harder than if I just said, I'm just going to buy everything from the supermarket the way it is. And if the only consideration was the difficulty, um, that would be true. It was more difficult during the pandemic because I just, it was hard to find anything. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but, but tofu was hard to find. And like, anytime I could find vegan products in the shelves, they, they had gluten in them, which I was like, eh, not that, you know, gluten doesn't settle that well with me. And even, but even when I would do all the tofu, again, I, I just didn't feel like I was getting, uh, the, uh, the nutritional needs that I, that I needed. And it's possible. Maybe I could have like sat down with a vegan nutritionist and maybe they could have found the, the gap in my diet that, that was, uh, that was missing. Although again, I was, I was trying supplements and I, I did research on this. I was trying to find the supplements that had B12 and iron and, uh, um, like magnesium, like you know, cause a lot of things that vegans can be deficient on are your B12s, are your irons, are your, like magnesiums and other like minerals and stuff. Uh, and I was trying to find ways to supplement with them and not just like buy the cheap supplements off the the shelf, but like find ones that were not just certified vegan, but that were like, this is like a whole foods based supplement that like your body is going to actually absorb. And I, I just didn't notice any effects from them. I, w- I was always feeling sluggish and lethargic. I always felt kind of like gassy and bloated my digestion was never good when I was on the vegan diet, um, which which was always uh, always a struggle. Um, I'd spend a, an embarrassing amount of time in the bathroom, um, you know. I and you know we believed in eating a whole foods based vegan diet that comprised of a lot of a lot of fruits and a lot of veggies and a lot of you know healthy foods. But again, where we live, it was like that stuff's not always just readily available. It's like fresh produce here in Pennsylvania that's good lasts like a couple months of the year. Then you like, you know, you go to you know your grocery store in like November and like the strawberries are, they cost twice as much as they did over the summer. They're, they're, they're puny. They're old. They're about to expire. You know, same with like your, I mean, it's like, and you can only eat like 
you know, some fruits you can eat, but it's like, okay, pineapples don't grow in my natural area. Uh, you can only eat so much pineapple before your mouth is bleeding, <laughs> you know? So, uh, it, it was just a lot of things like that. Um, and I, I think with like a vegan diet, um, I noticed it's like you have to eat to meet your calorie needs and to meet your protein needs. You had to just eat more. It was like, it was a constant chore, like to eat enough food. Um, because a lot of like, that's one of the benefits to a vegan diet. If you're trying to lose weight is that, you can eat a lot of, if you're eating it healthy, you can eat a lot of foods, but they're lower in calories. And that will help you with losing weight to a point if you're uh, very overweight. And a lot of people who go vegan and do it right, and they go from eating a standard American diet to eating a vegan diet, they'll notice a lot of health benefits from that too. Um, but uh, I don't know, like the studies I've read, which again, I'm not like a, I'm not a, a nutritionist, um, and I understand the limits of epidemiology studies. Um, but uh, I don't know if you guys ever watched that long, I mean, super long debate that Joe Rogan had between, uh, I forget their names now. He had a vegan and a... Yes. Like a that more, doctor got roasted by my guy, the guy, the game changers the guy. The game changers. Oh, what is so there, there was that one, but then there was another one. He's had, he's had a couple of vegan versus non-vegan conversations and debates on there. Um, I don't know if I watched the game changers one. Um, but I, uh, I watched the other one, but anyway, uh, the, the, the theory of it is that when you first go vegan, your body can recycle a lot of the nutrients that might be lacking in a vegan diet and you won't notice deficiencies right away. But for some people, and again, that's why I think some people do vegan and their bodies are good at recycling certain things or better at absorbing certain nutrients from plant foods. Um, and so they're able to sustain it for longer or just for life. But for me, it was like, I just kept feeling again, that, that weak kind of an anemic feeling being lethargic, not having any energy. Also like my ADHD and my, my, my mental problems were just way worse than they were when I switched back to, to doing the meat. Um, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jordan Peterson and Michaela Peterson and like they're diet story but a lot of that a lot of that matched up with with my experience and it was i was i was and again i I didn't do this casually it was very begrudgingly because i remember being a vegan and hearing about their carnivore diet and and like being angry and being like you know oh that's ridiculous you know how how could people do that um and i remember denying the feelings i had about like feeling weak and feeling the side effects of my diet but then it was like when all the other factors became harder and and more prevalent in my mind, that's when I got to the point where I was like, all right, maybe I need to at least try it. And I was like, I'm going to try it. I'm going to go back to eating meat. I want to see if there's a difference. If there's not, then I go back to being vegan. But I was like, but I have to know. I have to know if I'm if, if that's the solution to, to my problems or not. And it at least helped. Again, I will grant the possibility that maybe there was something I was missing, but I... I definitely feel like I was doing as much as I could from my own end to do my due diligence and research and and do it in the most sustainable way possible. And it was it was harder for me than it was my wife. Like uh, my wife stopped being vegan when, when I did too, but I don't think she like. I think she could go back to being vegan. I don't think she would notice much of a difference. So again, I think I think biochemistry and and people's you know, nutritional needs does vary. So, so I worry about getting too much iron. <laughs> like I, I've, I've 
looked at, you know, the iron and a lot of vegan foods. And I mean, it's, I mean, I get a lot every day, uh, mainly from right. eating like greens and uh, edamame and stuff like that. But it's a different, but you know, it's a different form of iron, right? The than the iron, iron that's fine yeah. in meat products. Um, and even, so I once, when I was part of that animal uh, advocates group, we once did a, so we, we would do like 30 day vegan challenges. We would like, uh, basically pay for people to do like we would like give them a hundred dollars to sign up and do a 30-day vegan challenge and when they started they would they would do a walkthrough with a vegan nutritionist through a local health food store with us um again i was hardcore into this (laughs) (laughs) um one of the things the vegan nutritionist said though again this is coming from a vegan nutritionist she said that uh it's true that uh we absorb the iron in plants at a lower rate than we absorb the iron through meat. Uh, her explanation for why that wasn't a problem was that we just don't need that much iron. Um, but again, I, my my theory on that is it depends on the individual. And I think a lot of like a lot of nutritional studies, I think, go by averages. Like the average person needs this. It's like, well, the that's the average. That means that there are going to be some people who don't need that much, and there's going to be other people who do need more. There are going to be some people who absorb the plant-based iron really well, and there might be other people who don't absorb the plant-based iron really well. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with just our evolution and like people who people who can trace their ancestry to people who ate more plant-based diets are probably going to do better on plant-based diets, and people who can trace their ancestry to people who ate more, you know, animal products are probably going to do better on that. And I wouldn't even say that's a hard rule, but just that there's a lot of a lot of variables that go into it. Oh yeah, for sure. There's so many different factors. I mean, so I've been like having weird tingling sensation in my hands lately, and I thought it was B12 for sure. Like I've tested my B12, it looks fine on the blood results. And also um, something called pernicious anemia runs in my family, which means you don't absorb B12. And I was like, this has got to be it. But then I kept thinking. And um, just recently, I actually just got off my birth control. And I was researching about that. And that can also cause like all these really weird side effects. One of them being your limbs start feeling numb. So there's just like so many different factors that go into this. And it's really hard. I mean, it's, it really is just finding what works for you and what you feel comfortable doing and what matches your beliefs the most. So I, I would, I'm with you on the gluten. So uh, we, I think we figured out that gluten makes me snore. And because it like inflames my nasal passages, just like you said, and that's probably yep. why I've gotten so much, so mucusy in the past. And I didn't find that out until we were doing this. And then a few months ago, we were like, that's, that's gotta be what it is. And every time I eat gluten, it's like a snore. And when I don't, I don't. So and then the other crazy. thing we just found out with you, you were having like stomach cramps. Mm. And we were, we love dried mangoes. Like mm-hmm. they're so delicious. And mm, there's yeah. something called, oh, I can't remember the name of the diet, but it's basically you cut out these very fibrous 
foods that are in your diet for a short amount of time because usually what it is, it's like a leaky gut. And so you want to remove those really fibrous foods from your diet so your gut can heal and then, and then slowly incorporate back. it. So now he's he's been cutting back or cutting so out the dried mango. Dried mangoes. <laughs> yeah. I eat them like candy. Yeah, I, I used mean, to love does. dried mangoes and dried pineapples. I, I don't do them as much anymore because I'm concerned about the the uh, the sugar. But because um, it's hard to find the ones that don't have sugar added to them. Like you yes. have to go to like oh, yeah. your, your health food stores and stuff to find the no sugar added ones. Um, but yeah, I... I think another thing that no one is we, we're still like at the very cutting edge of figuring this part out is like our microbiomes mm-hmm. and how much of a role that plays into all of this stuff. But I'm I'm sure that plays a huge role. Um I actually think that's that's a big reason of why uh people like me or people like Jordan Peterson did better going to a high animal protein diet because uh one of the benefits of animal protein is that like it, it your gut's not like reactive to it. And so when you're eating a higher amount of that, it can help with healing digestive tract issues because it's like, it's kind of like the benefits of fasting without fasting. Um, Cause like you can, uh, if you're doing high protein and putting less in there, then you're, you know, not feeding the bad bacteria, but usually it's hard to like, you know, keep eating foods and to heal your gut at the same time. I mean, there's I've heard of people doing it while doing it on a vegan diet, but I, I think it's uh, it's a lot harder because you know everything that we eat, I think for the most part, other than meat, has some effect on our microbiome. So, but again, that's like we're still figuring out how how all of that works. It's such a a new area of 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 uh, medical study. Um, I, I'm curious, what are your guys' thoughts on a uh, the uh the lab grown meat I, I i find that kind of creepy <laughs> uh, well i mean that see that goes into the whole stereotype of vegans are trying to make us eat bugs trying to make us eat lab grown meat and all this garbage and obviously like i mean i'm not going to eat that lab grown meat like no way that sounds yeah disgusting dystopian crazy like that's yeah not, and it's it's really weird to me what they're putting in that stuff like right. I'm not eating crickets. Like I'm not eating any of this Klaus, Klaus Schwab stuff. Like that's that's not. I'm not yeah, with that was, agenda. And most yep. people, I would say, most vegans aren't. Um, that's what I would say. But I mean, obviously, there Except may be the ones doing it for the environment. Maybe. The very oh yeah, the very vocal ones. It seems the vocal ones are always the um, the most leftist ones. So that's kind of frustrating yeah. for people like me who's trying to start the plant-based caucus within the movement and trying to bring a bunch of us together. Yeah, I was I was still vegan. I mean, I was I was a vegan libertarian for 2 years from 2018 to to 2020. So you uh if you had started it, you know, what is it now? Uh, 6 6 years ago, I would have uh <laughs> I would have been right there with you. Um, well, to, to be fair, I will also say that we started being vegan after the pandemic, so we didn't have to worry about like the shortages of tofu or anything like that. We we started uh, last or uh, twenty twenty one, late twenty twenty one. So we'd already gotten past all that. So maybe if we'd have gone through that, we might have been like, oh, that'd have been a lot harder. But at that point, we might have still been eating the fake meats and all that kind of stuff. So I really factors. 
and I really like tofu. Um, I actually kind of miss eating it, but I, I, I've, I've been thinking about maybe trying to reintroduce it. I had concerns about if I had problems with soy. That's like such a divisive issue. Some people say soy is like estrogen, especially to men. Uh, I remember reading the vegan critiques of that, and I thought they were somewhat compelling. Um, and so I've thought about you know now that things are back to normal, maybe you know maybe instead of chicken. You know, maybe we go back to doing tofu. Um, it, it got old when we had to do it all the time, <laughs> but uh, but there were a lot of dishes we did with tofu that that I I really enjoyed. Um, I love when I what the last time I had tofu was probably like a few months ago, and it's because I we went to our favorite Thai restaurant, and I just I'm so used to ordering the tofu there. And I think the tofu there is better than the meat there, so I ordered my pad thai vegan for the <laughs> first time in a, it was the first like f- probably fully vegan meal I'd had in a, in a in a couple years. So I didn't have anything uh, bad from that. So um, did you, you know, eat tempeh? Yeah, I I tried tempeh sometimes. I found it a little. It, it, it's less. First of all, it's harder to find where I'm at. I think. Um, uh, and I, I found it a little bit less versatile and the kids just didn't like it. That was our problem. Really? It's like, and that was now our kids are a little bit older. Um, so, but they're still like, our kids are like eight, six, four and one. So it's like, they're just at their picky stages and, uh, they would eat tofu. But the problem is like when you do tofu after tofu after tofu, they're like, I'm tired of tofu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we would try, like, we would try, like we got the tofu presses. We would try like doing you know, exotic things with the tofu, but we, I, I never could get that down right. Uh, I remember eating at this uh, restaurant in Washington, D.C. Uh, that did like vegan fried chicken that was 100% tofu. They just did, they just did extremely pressed dried tofu and then they just put it on the little uh, popsicle sticks and, you know, put the batter on it and fried it and it was delicious. All my attempts at that failed. <laughs> <laughs> Was was Happy Cow around when you were uh, vegan? Did you use that app to like see vegan restaurants around you or like if yeah, you vacation yeah, somewhere? Yeah, I would. And again, it was like back then there was it was like only the Asian restaurants who had tofu could really help you. Uh, and then I, I think some of the restaurants around me got the Impossible Burger. Of course, there was so much controversy around that with vegans when that came out because of the uh, they they did the. Uh, with the, the animal testing to get the FDA approval, or I guess the Beyond Burger didn't do that. Um, I refuse but, to eat that. The Impossible Burger. It's made with GMO soy, funded by Bill Gates. Like, get it out of here. See, really? I, it's like I knew all those arguments, but like I liked the Impossible Burger because <laughs> it tasted good, <laughs> and it. I just never liked the Beyond Burger. To me, it always has this like. I feel like I'm eating cat food. I don't know why. It just <laughs> always has this weird synthetic taste that I I could never like. And I I I wouldn't do the Impossible Burgers, which is expensive. I usually just enjoy doing a regular black bean burger or veggie burger. Um, yeah, we finally found one that's it's all it is is vegetables. There's not even oil in it. Which is what we are. We're whole food, plant based, so we don't eat any added oil. Uh, okay, so you guys try to avoid the seed oil. Salt. I was going to ask that if you. Uh, if you try to avoid a lot of that, any oil, like we don't cook with olive oil. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like that. anyone trying to be health conscious these days, no matter what you do, it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
because they're, I mean, they're just pumping stuff full of oil and salt and sugar. I mean, any processed food, especially, it's just horrific. Yeah, no, for sure. I 100% agree. When you were vegan, did you have family and friends support and did any of your relationships suffer? So family was very supportive. My dad and mom weren't vegan. My mom was gluten-free though and uh, has dairy sensitivity. So she would have no problem making vegan things for us. My uncle could not do dairy. So we would always do vegan desserts together. My, uh, my dad was probably like a little annoyed at first, but then he got it. He he kind of like would make it a habit to like he always liked to try to find ways to make good vegan food for us when we would come over. Um, and uh, my sister and her boyfriend were actually vegan before us, and so they were a hundred percent vegan and supportive of us there. Are they um, still vegan now? Or yep, my sister and her boyfriend are still vegan now. Um, actually, my sister's boyfriend is a lifelong vegetarian slash vegan so like a couple times in his life he's gone back to eating eggs and dairy but his entire life he's never had meat wow Um, that's crazy and he's relatively healthy so it's kind of like you know what i mean like i mean i mean i'm not in his body so i don't know how he feels but i'm like you know when people say you know you're gonna shrivel up and die or or like necessarily have health problems from being vegan it's like i know that's not true um and I, i don't it's funny even though i'm not vegan anymore sometimes i still get that like tick when someone says something about vegan and I'm just like, all right, keyboard warrior mode activate. I need to tell this person <laughs> why they're super wrong about veganism, even though I'm not a vegan anymore. <laughs> Appreciate but, that. Because <laughs> uh, there's just so many stupid misconceptions that people had about it that, that you know, again, it's still like I can still remember uh, being like it was it was such a part of my life for so long. It's you don't forget that stuff. But I didn't have a lot of support from probably friends. It, it, it probably put a strain on like going out to eat with friends and trying to find a place. And we always kind of felt like our vegan diet made it harder for us to connect with people at our church because like people yeah. typically get together for meals and people, I think, you know, Bri, my wife and I uh, kind of suspected people were hesitant to invite us to things because it was like the added wrinkle of, oh, they, they're vegan. So we'd have to, um, so you know, I, I, that was definitely, that, that's probably like the part, the, the part of our life where we had the least support, but, um, uh, was, was probably like our, in our church and they weren't like hostile towards us. They were accommodating for like some things like, uh, they bought vegan snacks for our kids when they were in Sunday school. Oh, that's so, nice. And when we did like, when they did like huge church functions, they would make sure there was vegan dishes for us. Um, so it's, like, it's not like they were like hostile towards us, but I think it just made it the kind of like spontaneous, like, Hey, let's invite the Winograds over for dinner. And it's kind of like, Oh, we don't know what to feed them. They still did once in a while, but it was just like, I feel like that it, it didn't happen as often as it, as it potentially could have. Um, although there hasn't exactly been an uptick in invitation since we stopped being <laughs> vegan, but uh, I, I told Bria, I was like, maybe they don't know. I was like, I don't know if we have to like, you know, do some kind of weird like official announcement, like walk in wearing like shirts with steaks on them or We're something. Not I don't know. <laughs> you just you just replace veganism with like intense libertarianism, <laughs> right? Yeah. And people are like oh yeah, just subtract. Oh yeah, that. Well, <laughs> I also told I told my wife I was like it, it might just be yeah, but we took away the veganism, but now I show up at church wearing shirts about like taxationist <laughs> theft and <laughs> and things like that. So and it's like you know. 
and uh, people who know me know I'm a talker and that I'll I'll talk politics. So, well, we definitely appreciate you coming on here. I mean, we we went through about half our questions. I would say. I mean, we could definitely talk forever with you about a bunch of this stuff. Um, but how can people contact you and what? Uh, just just give us some plugs, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, if you have, if you have more questions, I'd be happy to come back on sometime and try to answer more of them. But um, the uh, best way to find me, um, if you want to follow me on social media, just look up Biblical uh, Anarchy on Twitter or Biblical Anarchy Podcast anywhere else. Um, same with like Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify, uh, things like that. Just look Biblical Anarchy Podcast. Uh, you can also go to BiblicalAnarchyPodcast.com. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you, Jacob. And, um, thanks for listening to plant-based Liberty.